Well, in the year 2000, I had the opportunity to um, travel on a Navy ship. I was a young Marine, and we went all through the Mediterranean. And I had grown up in a suburb of L.A., so I was used to uh, different types of people. But once I went on this trip, on this deployment, I was exposed to 30-plus countries, different cultures, different tastes, different sounds, different smells, different architecture. And at the conclusion of that, my world got huge. Things just seemed a lot bigger to me because I experienced something I never experienced before on the multi-senses um, that, that I have. And today we are going to attempt the same thing. And this summer, this is what we're going to attempt. Today we start a new sermon series called The Heart of Worship. And we're going to begin this journey in the Psalms. And the Psalms are God's hymn book that speaks to us through this vivid poetry and imagery. And it allows us to encounter God on a heart-to-heart level. As we read the Psalms, we see that the psalmist offers these sacrifices of praise. And these sacrifices are not perfect. They're just how they feel. And we learn something about God and the interaction of the psalmist and God as he works these things out. They give us this bigger picture of God, and it results in this passionate praise, petition, and prayer in the midst of all of life. And as Christians, we are called to live a life of worship, praising and praying and celebrating God with our whole heart in every context and situation in our life. And as we engage with these poems, a convergence is going to happen, a convergence between heaven and earth is going to come crashing together in this transcendent, far-off way, yet close way as we plumb the depths of God's heart. And so this summer, during the series, we won't be necessarily focused on the nuances, the technical nuances of the Psalms, but yet, again, plumbing the depths of the infinite God in his heart so that we could just have a face, a heart-to-heart encounter with him. So if you're not there already, go ahead and turn to Psalm 1 and 2. So that might be strange that we are looking at two psalms. The psalms are actually five separate books. And Psalm 1 and 2 act as an introductory to the rest of the psalms. So we're going to look at those today. And today I want to look at five aspects on what a heart of worship looks like so that we can be, be prepared to engage God with our senses, our emotions, and just develop this capacity to see God in a multi-dimensional way that perhaps we've not yet encountered him on. So let us pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, we bless you and we entreat you by the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us the things that we do not know. As we begin this journey plumbing the depths of your heart, we are in for some deep waters. And so we pray that you would be there. Teach us, challenge us. Let us have a bigger vision of who you are. We pray for this and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see is a heart of worship delights in God's word. God has given us his word. God has revealed himself through his word. And we see a heart of worship finds pleasure in God's prescription for life. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sits in the company of mockers, but whose delight, whose satisfaction, whose pleasure is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates or who ponders. It actually means mutter out loud. 
on his law day and night. And we see that here, the, the company of the wicked and the mock, mockers is juxtaposed to having delight in God's word. And we see that there's a progression here. That first, you start to walk in step with the wicked. Then you stand firm with the wicked. And then you sit, which is the ultimate intimacy with the wicked. But not so if you delight in God's word. And many times when I converse with people inside or outside the church, and we, we talk about just life stuff, the first thing I hear is, and I've done it myself, they, they say, well, this is what I think this means to me. And I say this in love. It doesn't matter what you or I think. It matters what God says. He is their creator and we are his creature. We're called to be living sacrifices, offering our lives on the altar through obedience. And people don't like that word obedience. It sounds, well, like obedience. (laughs) But here's the thing. When you obey, when you obey the creator, there's this felt satisfaction and delight because you're doing what you were created to do, which is worship. We were created to worship God. And when we walk in step and delight in his word through obedience, we feel something. We feel his pleasure. And we experience his pleasure. And God wants us to have pleasure in him. We see that God's word is always relevant. And it's more relevant even now in our culture. More relevant than ever ever has been. And so we worship God by continually pondering, muttering, bringing him back into the picture of our lives. Every part of it. We can't compartmentalize God over here and then our work life or our home life. It's everything. God must be part of everything. And his word has, uh, has bearing on absolutely everything. And when we do this, the story of scripture moves from our head into our hearts and we become part of it. And what is the result of this worship when we do this? Well, verse 3, that person is, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. When I was in Israel, the deserts of Israel during this deployment, it was a vast wasteland. But you would see these lines of trees that were just, just growing in the midst of this arid desert sun because their, their roots were so um, deep that they were tapping into the underground living streams of water. And so they were able to thrive in these, these, these conditions that were very harsh. And for us, God's transcendent word nourishes us and allows us to transcend the natural circumstances of this world. We have to have some deep roots in God's word. We also see that a heart of worship delights in the word Jesus Christ. We read, whatever they do prospers. That, that means whatever they do prospers. That word prospers means uh, or makes steady progress. You see, the Psalms draw us into a biblical story that culminate in Jesus. Everything in the Psalms is about Jesus. Every Psalm is about Jesus. There isn't some songs of Psalms about Jesus. All of them are about Jesus. We get a different aspect of who Jesus is through the Psalms. So getting to the heart of worship is getting to the heart of Christ. And the fact is you become like what you worship. And when you worship the God of the Bible, you prosper because you become like his son. So I have to ask you, how do you engage with his word? How do you engage in his word right now? You just don't engage in it at all? Is it a three-minute devotional? 
Do we engage with our whole person? I'm going to encourage you. We're starting some small group series, summer series, and one of them is how to read the Bible. Some of us don't know how to read the Bible. We have this, our word and we don't know how to read it. So I encourage you to check that out. Or our first love to love group, connecting with God on a heart-to-heart level, being fed from his word. So that's the first thing. The second thing, a heart of worship trusts in God's justice. God is a just and perfect God. And a heart of worship stands in awe of God's righteous justice. Psalm 1 verse 4 says, Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. God is perfectly just and justice will be served. We might not see justice being served now, but it will happen because God is a just and perfect God. And those who are righteous will stand in the great assembly before the throne of God, praising and worshiping him. Only the righteous. Those that are wicked will not stand in the judgment of God. And as I was on deployment going to um, country to country, you see these gross injustices all throughout the world. And some of us have been witnesses to those things as well. So what do we do right now about these things? How do we worship? Well, we worship by waiting, by crying out, by trusting in God's timing. Does that mean we don't do anything? No. We worship as everyday people of God by administering justice within the delegated parameters, social spheres, and cultural moments God has placed us. He's placed us all in areas where we're called to bring God into the picture, the truth of God, the justice of God. But here's the thing, folks. When we do that and we worship in truth and spirit, we've got to be willing to accept the consequences for that. We're going to be going against the, the, the cultural stream when we do that. We see that a heart of worship trusts ultimately in the righteous Savior. Verse 6 says, For the Lord watches over. I love that phrase, the Lord watches over. That phrase means intimate knowledge. God has intimate knowledge of the righteous, his righteous. The way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The fact is, we're all wicked in and of ourselves, apart from Christ. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And God is so transcendent and just, yet he's so close to us. We see the pinnacle of that closeness in Jesus Christ. You see, this is the gospel. Only righteous people could stand before a just and perfect God. And so what did God do? God goes and he, he steps out of heaven. The, the eternal son steps out of heaven and enters into our suffering, enters into our experience and lives a perfect and righteous life. And then he's nailed to a cross. And three days later, he's resurrected. And here's the thing. When he was on that cross paying for our sins, we put our faith and trust in him. Yes, our sin is wiped away but we're still not ready for heaven because only righteous people go to heaven. But here's the thing. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, God not only wipes away our sin, he gives us the righteousness of Christ and accredits it to our account so we can stand before God. And that's why we praise and we worship. That's the gospel. We are righteous in Christ. And so we trust in the righteous Savior. 
day. Third, we see a heart of worship lives in the reality of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things. God is the sovereign king, and a heart of worship submits to God's authority. And we see Psalm 1 was very individualistic. It was talking about an individual. As we go into Psalm 2, it's talking about, it's more of a corporate song, psalm. It's, it's talking about nations. And we see, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord. That word, the Lord, is Yahweh. That was the name that God gave Moses. He says, I am. I am the great I am. And against his anointed, saying, let us break the chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He laughs. The Lord, a different word for God, meaning master, one with authority. He laughs at him. He scoffs at him. We see that here in this, in this part of the psalm. You have these nations, and they're like, hey, let's just do away with what God wants us to do. Let's conspire against him. Doesn't that sound very familiar today? And what does God do? He laughs. He said, give me a break. I'm the sovereign God of the universe. The fact is there are national, international things going on, and things seem bleak at times. But God is sovereign. He's not asleep at the wheel. I can remember going into Croatia. Croatia was a, one of the Soviet bloc countries. And the whole nation was devastated during, during communism. And, and it used to be at one, one point a thriving area for Christianity. Um, but it was wiped out during the, the communist atheism. And, and churches were destroyed. And, and all of these things were destroyed. And so after, after um, the Soviet Union fell... We, about five or six years later, went into this, this Croatian city, thinking that it was still going to be very communistic. But here's what was strange, was the, there was thriving Christians. There was a Christian community. What had happened during that time, during the communism and the atheist times, there was an emboldened Christian community. And once communism left, it just flourished. And this, once, this, this town was once again a thriving Christian uh, epicenter for that area. You can't stop God. He is sovereign. Just because we don't get it, because we don't see it, because God hasn't revealed it to us, doesn't mean he's asleep at the wheel. He has a purpose. We also see that a heart of worship submits to the anointed king, the sovereign king of the universe, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6 says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 8 says, Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. You will break them with a rod of iron and will dash them with pieces like pottery. This is speaking to Jesus' second coming. Jesus is the king. He is the anointed king. And he has dominion over all of the cosmos. Jesus was there before time even began. Jesus was the agent of creation. And Jesus will be there in the end. And he's the king. And his rule transcends time, space, and matter. That's a fact. And the first, when he came during his first advent, he came as the spotless lamb to take away the sins of the world. And his kingdom did enter in. But his kingdom is not consummated yet. He's coming back. And when he comes back, he will not come back as the lamb. He's going to come back as the conquering king of glory, establishing his kingdom, his earthly kingdom. And so we worship living in the reality of that kingdom right now. God is in control. Here you go. Uh, spoiler alert. We ready? 
Spoiler alert here. We win. <laughs> we win in Christ. And we need to live in that victory right now. We are not an oppressed people. We are a people from a royal priesthood with the anointed king who's coming back. Amen. And here's the deal. We're going to celebrate Holy Communion today. And Holy Communion does point to Jesus' victory on the cross. But it's more than that. It's a sacrament. It's a gift. It's this multidimensional act of worship. We get to taste the elements, see them, smell them, ponder them. And it points to the victory in the cross, but it points also to the victory of his coming kingdom when one day we will actually commune with Jesus face to face, physically. So I want to encourage you today, as we partake in communion and the elements, I want you to think about that. When you taste the bread, I want you to think about that, the victory that you have in the cross, but the victory that it still waits us. When you drink the juice, I want you to think of the victory on the cross and what was done for you and how you've been grafted into this body of Christ, but also about the communion you'll have with Christ and everyone else in his body in the new heavens and the new earth. This is bigger. This extends beyond time, space, and matter. This is huge. So I want you to think about that as you worship God in truth and spirit when we come up to communion later on this morning. Fourthly, we see that a heart of worship celebrates the mystery of God's holiness. God is holy. He is so set apart. He is different. He is the ultimate different other, the supreme different other. And a heart of worship celebrates the holiness of the great I am. Psalm 2, 10 through 12 says, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with reverence, and celebrate or express joy, his rule with trembling. And so we're called to worship God with this mixture of emotions, reverence, this reverent fear, but joy within trembling. You see, God is so holy than we could possibly imagine. He is so different than us. When the Israelites approached Mount Sinai in Exodus, God manifests himself on the mountain, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and what do they do? They're scared, because God is so holy. When Moses encounters the burning bush, what does God tell him? He says, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. God is holy. We can't trifle with God. And this is a warning to all those those nations and leaders that our God is wonderfully good, just, wrathful, and loving. You see, God's, God is perfectly loving and he's perfectly wrathful and he can hold those things in perfect tension because he's perfect and he's holy and he's set apart. But God is that big. We see a heart of worship celebrates as well the untamable son, Jesus. Jesus cannot be tamed. Verse 12 says, kiss his son. This is hearkening back to when you would pay homage to a monarch and you'd pay homage to him, you'd kiss them. And he says, you, you, would, you would worship them. And he says, kiss his son, give him, pay homage, worship him, or he'll be angry and your way will lead your, you to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. And some of you are sitting here and you're saying, I don't like this description of Jesus. I don't like this description of God. His wrath will flare up in a moment. 
Jesus is so terribly wonderful and mysteriously good. We see the Apostle John. The Apostle John walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. As a matter of fact, he was called the one whom Jesus loved. I mean, he gave himself that title, but nonetheless, <laughs> he was humble. So the fact is, is there was some intimacy there. He was in Jesus' um, inner inter circle, if you will. Yet John, when he's an old man, is on the island of Patmos. And he has an encounter with the risen Christ, and he's writing the book of Revelation. And he says in chapter 1, when he encounters Christ, what does he do? Does he go, hey, Jesus, great, high five him? No, he falls on his face. He falls on his face. Because the holiness is just unbelievable. He falls on his face. And the moment you try to put God in a box, he ceases to be the true God, and he becomes very small. The fact is, is we are finite creatures trying to wrap our minds around an infinite God. I can remember being in Rome, and I went into the Vatican City, I went to St. Peter's Basilica, and it's huge, and th those cathedrals and, and are just built in, you know, with high ceilings, and there's all this artwork, and, and you're just like overcome with just the holiness of God and the, and, and, and the vastness of God. Yes, that's just the tip of the iceberg of who God is. That was just someone's visual representation of it and architectural representation of it. But God is so much bigger. And the only proper response for us is to fall on our face and worship. You see, the Lion of Judah, our Lord Jesus, cannot be tamed. And we worship when we are utterly consumed with the mystery of God's holiness. Finally, we see heart of worship rests in the wonder of God's grace. Psalm 1-1 starts with, blessed is the one, or highly favored by God's, God's divine grace is the one. And Psalm 2-12, the last uh, verse of Psalm 2, closes with a blessing. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. We see that we are a blessed people by God's sovereign divine grace that we don't deserve. And we see a heart of worship rests in the wonder of God's common grace. As I stood on the ship, I remember being in the midst of the Mediterranean and just looking at the vastness of the ocean. And it was like, it was like I was meeting God face to face right then and there. I wasn't worshiping the water. It was, it was pointing to the creator. It was pointing to God. And there was just this sense that everything was going to be all right because God's grace was upon me. And you see, here's the thing. We're going to we're going to participate in the sacrament of communion, communion and there's a class in the sacrament of baptism later on, but God does these sacramental acts in our lives every single day. And it manifests itself in, in the, the ordinary. Maybe it's you when you're sitting on your back porch and you, you feel that summer breeze and you hear the, you hear the sound of the, of the leaves moving around and it's just like God's just kind of touching you right there and you're like, things are going to be okay. Or maybe it's when you go and you kiss your kid goodnight or you just hug your wife or your husband really tight, knowing, God, thank you for this gift. Everything's going to be fine. You have me. That's how we worship God in the everyday, through these sacramental acts. We worship him by just enjoying the ordinary, because it's a gift from him. Every single thing is a gift from God. 
We also see that a heart of worship rests in the wonder of God's special grace in Christ. We have a special grace in Christ. Christ is our refuge, our strength, our rock, our fortress. We have grace in Christ. We don't deserve this. And we worship God when we stop trying to earn our salvation and rest in what Christ has done on the cross. That's grace. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. Enjoy it. It's a gift. We worship God when we stop trying to make ourselves pay for something when Christ has already paid for it. Some of us have this baggage and we're constantly just saying, oh, I need to pay for this. I need to pay for this. And God's like, no, what you need to do is rest in my grace. My grace is sufficient for that. So stop beating yourself up over it. It's about God's grace. Enjoy what he has done. We worship God when we start believing in the efficacy of his goodness. God is a good God, friends. He is so good, bigger than we possibly could even imagine. So 30 countries and counting, I, I experienced sights, tastes, things, experiences, and the world got bigger. And so my prayer for us is this summer, as we engage God with our sights, with our senses, as we read his scripture, as we just bask in his goodness and his holiness and his mystery and his grace, that we see a bigger picture of who God is. And I want to just invite you again as we go and we partake in communion later on. Start right there. Just worship. It's all about worship. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you a humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But of all, we thank you for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world through our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with a truly thankful heart, we may show forth your, your praise, not only with our lips, but with our lives, by giving us ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness in all our days. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all the ages, we say, amen.